Amen and good morning. We're going to continue in worship through the preaching of God's word. And this morning we are continuing our series in the book of First Kings. And I'd love for us to read our passage together so you can follow along as we read First Kings uh, chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. You can follow along in your copy of God's word. This is also on the message map that you should have received when you came through the door. And this will be on the screens behind me as well. Again, this is 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 1 and read through verse 6. It says this. King Solomon, however, <clears throat> loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father, had done. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can read it, that we can know you through it, that we can know something about ourselves in light of who you are, God. And Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would be with Pastor Kevin as he serves you as a messenger of your word. And Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. And that you would put feet to this truth in our lives, that it would be truth that travels from our head into our heart, to our hands, and then eventually out into the habitat around us, God. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Stephen. And uh, thank you for that time of worship. As Stephen mentioned, when you came in, you should have received a message map. If you'll look on the back of uh, your bulletin, you'll find that there. If you want to take just a moment to locate that, maybe a pen. And while you're doing that, uh, let me just say welcome to all of those who are in our overflow room. Or if you're watching us by video right now, or if you're listening by podcast, I'd like to say welcome to you. Uh, as well. Before we get into the message today, I want to take just a moment um, and address what has been on so many of our minds, the brutal attack by Hamas on the nation of Israel a couple of weeks ago. I've had a number of people uh, who have asked me, what, what can we do? And I think we need to acknowledge there are a number of things that we cannot do. Uh, we cannot determine how many warships need to be sent uh, from the United States to the Mediterranean Sea. There are a number of things that are outside of our control, but there are some things that we can do. And I'd like to mention a couple to you. Uh, the first one is to simply pray. Um, and pray in a couple of ways. One is to pray for the protection of Israel. Uh, to pray for wisdom for their leaders, to pray for protection, uh, not just over Israel, uh, but over uh, Jewish people everywhere. Um, there has been this um, rise in anti-Semitism that I've not seen in my lifetime. And so I think we need to pray uh, for those individuals. And as Christians, we acknowledge 
that every person was created in the image of God and any kind of racism is wrong, uh, including anti-Semitism. So let's, let's pray for their protection. Um, the second um, uh, way that we can pray is we can pray that the gospel would spread through this, that through these awful events that God would use this to draw uh, people in Israel and around the world to himself. And so I think it's appropriate uh, to pray for both of those. Uh, the second thing that we can do is this. A number of people have, have asked, in light of all of these events, um, Pastor, do you think that this is the end? Do you think Jesus will, will return soon? And this is my answer. I don't know. Uh, the, the Bible tells us what we need to know about the return of Christ, but I can't tell you if it's imminent. Um, in some ways, I would always say it is. We are living in the last days. The moment that Jesus stepped out of that tomb, we entered the last days. Um, however, I cannot tell you next week, next month, next year. Um, the Bible does not give us that information, but what it does is it gives us the information um, that we need to be ready. And so I would say to you, if you're not a follower of Christ, that you need to be ready. You do not know how much time you have as an individual. And we don't know when that day will come that according to the Bible, the skies will part, the Lord will appear, the dead in Christ will rise first, the rest of us who are left will be called up into the air and there we will be with him for eternity. Now, we don't, do not know when that will happen, but we know what it takes to be ready for that day when it comes. And so I would just encourage you to make sure that you're right with the Lord. So I'd like to take just a moment before we get into the message and pray and ask you to join me in praying for the nation of Israel. Father, we do lift up uh, Israel to you. We pray for their leaders. We pray for wisdom for those who are making decisions right now. We pray for those who are hurting uh, from loss. We pray for those who are suffering right now um, in some sort of hostage situation. Uh, and God, we ultimately pray for their protection and for their protection in places all around the world. Um, and Father, for us, we pray that all of us would be ready for whenever the day comes that you either call us home or the Lord returns. And Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me in prayer. Uh, on May 15th, 1894, the Baltimore Orioles played the Boston Bean Eaters in an afternoon baseball game at what was Boston's fairly new state-of-the-art stadium located in the Roxbury section of Boston. It was known as South End Grounds, and it was considered to be the finest ballpark in the country. It had these striking twin towers with spires that reached up high into the sky, and it had two levels of seating that enabled the park to hold over 5,000 spectators, which was a large number at the time. At one point in the game, as the Boston Bean Eaters' Tommy Tucker slid into third base, the Orioles' third baseman, John McGraw, kicked Tucker in the face. This then led to a fight between Tucker and McGraw, which then led to a bench-clearing brawl between the two teams, which then led to a fight in the stands among the fans supporting the two different teams. 
which then led to a fire being started by some of the fans in the stands, which then led to this almost new, beautiful, but wooden stadium catching fire, which then led to the entire stadium burning all the way to the ground, which then led to almost 200 buildings around the stadium catching fire, which then led to almost 12 acres of real estate in Boston being destroyed. And it all started with a kick in the face. Here's why I tell you that story. There is this progression of sin in our lives. What starts off is just one sin or one bad decision or one little compromise can often lead to more sinful choices, more bad decisions, and a pattern of behavior that can cause a fire that will eventually destroy our lives, which is exactly what we see happening in the passage that Stephen read earlier today in the life of King Solomon. When you back up a chapter and you read chapter 10 of 1 Kings, you see the story of this man who had such incredible wisdom, who was known around the world for his wisdom, that the queen of Sheba, Sheba was a very wealthy, powerful nation in what is currently uh, Saudi Arabia. You see the queen of Sheba and her entourage coming to Israel to pay homage to King Solomon, to listen to Solomon, to learn from Solomon, and to see all that he had accomplished as king. We read that account and it tells us just how powerful Israel was at this point and how famous Solomon had become as king over Israel. But then you turn to chapter 11 and you heard the passage earlier. It's the proverbial but in life. You know, the one that changes everything. You know, the girl says, I've, I finally met the man of my dreams. He checks, his, he checks every box. He's exactly who I've been looking for. But, turns out he's married. Uh, it's the but, it's the however that changes the story completely. It ruins everything. That's exactly what we see in chapter 11. This is how chapter 11 opens, and, and it's so important. I want to put this on the screen so you can see it. Verse 1 says, Solomon, however, there's the word, Solomon, however, loved many women. Solomon, this man full of wisdom, this man who had accomplished so much, he built the temple. He constructed the hall of justice. He expanded the royal palace. He secured the borders of Israel. He led the nation of Israel to be the great superpower of that region. Solomon accomplished all of these incredible things. And then chapter 11 opens and tells us, however, Solomon loved many foreign women. As wise as he was, as as much as he honored the Lord in every other area of his life, in this area, he chose to disobey the Lord. There were two ways specifically that he disobeyed God, and we see both of those in this verse. Uh, one was Solomon loved many, many women. Uh, he married many women. 
Now understand that God's plan for marriage from the beginning was one man and one woman in marriage. You see this clearly in the creation story. God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Julie and Ashley and Sarah and Eve. From the beginning, it was one man and one woman, and Jesus affirmed this in his ministry. In Matthew 19, we read these words where Jesus said, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now granted, if you've been around church for a while, if you've read the Old Testament, you know that not all of the patriarchs in the Old Testament followed this plan of God. That many of these patriarchs had multiple wives. This was common in the ancient cultures and it was allowed in Israel. It was a common practice for a couple of reasons. One, the population of men, of young men, was lower than the population of women. Now, warfare was just a natural part of life. Men would go off to battle on an almost annual basis. And so many young men would go to battle and they would die and there would be these young widows left at home. Many young unmarried men would go off to battle and therefore these women at home would not have someone to marry who had died on the battlefield. And, and so simply because the population of men was lower, this was allowed. Secondly, in those cultures, it was very difficult for single women to provide for themselves and to protect themselves. And so these polygamous marriages were common and, and they happened even in Israel, even though it was not God's design. But in Solomon's case, here's what we have to understand. He went way, way beyond what was considered just an acceptable number. His father David, for example, had four wives. Abraham had two or three, depending on how you interpret one of the names of one of his wives. Uh, Jacob had two wives. Solomon, however, had 700 wives. I mean, saying that Solomon had many, many wives is a major understatement. He had many, many, many wives. That was the first place where he disobeyed the Lord. The second place where he disobeyed the Lord was that he married many foreign women. This was clearly against the Lord's will. Look at what we read in Deuteronomy 7. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord lists the nations around Israel, and then he gave these instructions to the Israelites. He said, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Do you see here why they were told not to intermarry? Because God knew that these marriages would turn the hearts of the Israelites away from him and to other gods, which is exactly what happened in the life of Solomon. Look back at the passage and down at verse 4. Here's what we read. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. 
Of course they did. Of course they did. Marriage is the union of two people in every way. No other relationship in life is like the marriage relationship. This is something we all know, something we all understand. When two people marry, their interests will naturally start to align. It, it is why in the New Testament, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians warned the Corinthians about marrying those who are not believers. Now, you can see this on the screen. Look at what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians. Do not be yoked with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? Now keep in mind that much of the Bible was written by those and to those who lived in an agrarian world. They understood the principles of farming. We don't get it quite in the same way. Most of us do not understand all the things that happen uh, so that we can get food. If you ask me where do apples come from, I can tell you, aisle three at Publix. Where does meat come from? The back of the store. Uh, and so we miss some of the language from the New Testament and the Old Testament because we don't understand all of the farming terms. But the Corinthians would have understood clearly what Paul meant here. Before tractors were used uh, for plowing, oxen were commonly uh, used to pull the plow. Farmers would take two oxen and they would pair them together and they would take a yoke, a wooden harness that goes over their necks and it would cause these animals to operate as one unit. If one went left, the other went left. If one stopped, the other stopped. They essentially became one. That is the image that Paul uses in this passage to warn Christians, be careful. Be careful. If you are a believer in Christ and you yoke yourself to an unbeliever, there's danger there. Now, we could debate, we could argue, what does it mean to be yoked? Is a strong friendship uh, a, a yoke? Is a business partnership a yoke? You can debate those. But it is, there is no debate about the marriage relationship. It absolutely applies to this passage. A marriage relationship qualifies as being yoked with another person. Whichever direction one goes, the other will go as well. Which is exactly what happened to Solomon. He married these women who were devoted to other gods, not the Lord. And as a result, here's what happened. Here's the verse again. You can see it on the screen. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. And because his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, Solomon built temples, these places of worship, to the gods of these nations around Israel. Uh, there are two that are specifically named in the passage. Uh, Ashtoreth was a goddess who was a fertility goddess. The worship of Ashtoreth involved a lot of sexual rituals. Solomon, at a minimum, allowed this worship to happen in Israel. Uh, perhaps, though, he not only allowed it, but participated in this worship. The other god that is mentioned is Molech. Um, Molech was a god who demanded 
child sacrifice. If you read further in the chapter, you will see another god named uh, Chemosh. Uh, Chemosh was the same god as Molech, uh, just a name given by a different nation. Uh, much like the Greek god Zeus is the same god as the Roman god Jupiter. The worship of Molech involved taking a child, typically a newborn or a very young child, and sacrificing that child to Molech as a sign of extreme devotion to the god and as a way to appease this god. Uh, and it was practiced by a number of nations around Israel, so much so that several times throughout the Old Testament, specific instructions are given. Do not worship this god. Do not worship Molech. Uh, and yet Solomon foolishly allowed the worship of Molech as well as these other gods. Why did he do this? Again, it was because his heart had been led away from the Lord. Bit by bit, step by step, Solomon drifted. So much so that by the time we get down to verse 6, here is what we read. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Solomon who began his life with such promise. Solomon who had incredible wisdom. Solomon who followed the Lord faithfully early in his life. After all of these years, this was his status report. This was the spiritual state of Solomon. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The Mars Orbiter was a robotic space probe that was launched by NASA on December 11th, 1998 to study the Martian climate, the atmosphere of Mars. Uh, the cost of this unmanned spacecraft was $325 million, uh, which would be over $500 million in today's dollars. Um, everything started off well and went, in, went according to plan, but 10 months into the launch, just as the Mars orbiter was set to enter the atmosphere of Mars, it lost communication with NASA and it was later determined that the spacecraft was nearly 150 miles off course. It entered the atmosphere of Mars at the wrong angle, which caused it to overheat and explode. This investigation also determined the reason why the Mars orbiter was 150 miles off course. It was because NASA had contracted with Lockheed Martin to build the Mars Orbiter, and Lockheed Martin used the English system of measurement in programming the spacecraft. NASA, however, used the metric system in their communication with the spacecraft after the launch. Now, at first, the difference was negligible. The spacecraft initially seemed to be on the right course. However, after 10 months and traveling 200 million miles, this small neg negligible difference became very significant, 150 miles significant, and, and significant enough that it completely destroyed the Mars orbiter. 
$325 million completely wasted. Not one picture was sent back, not one piece of data from Mars was ever sent back. The only lesson learned in this entire endeavor was, if you're going to send a spacecraft into space, use either the English system of measurement or use the metric system, but not both. Both will not work. In fact, if you use both, at first it will not be noticeable, but over time, the spacecraft will blow up. The same is true with us. Most of us don't wake up one day and say, you know, I've been following the Lord faithfully all these years, but today I'm going to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Uh, today is the day I'm going to absolutely blow it. Today is the day that I'm going to completely go off the rails and my life is going to blow up. Uh, it always starts with a drift. We're just, we're just slightly off course. And then over time, we get a little bit more off course and a little bit more and a little bit more. And so one day we look back and we realize, I am far away from the Lord. And over time, that drift ends up putting us on a trajectory where we are so far away from God and we look back and say, what happened? How did I drift so far away from the Lord? So how do we fight this? You can see this on your message map. Three things listed there. Number one, to fight the spiritual drift, guard your heart. You can fill that in, that blank. Guard your heart. In this passage, Solomon's heart is mentioned at least five times. Now the text tells us that his wives turned his heart from, other, uh, uh, from God to other gods. That his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. That the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from God. Now, the, the sad irony in this whole story is that Solomon absolutely knew better. Now, the reason we know that is that Solomon wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Uh, the book of Proverbs was a book of advice that Solomon wrote to his son where he covered just every slice of life, just about every aspect of life, Solomon said, hey, let me give you some advice from the wisest man that ever lived to his son. Advice about marriage, about work, about raising children, about money, all these different areas of life. Let me give you advice. And one of the areas where he gave advice was on the heart. And here is what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 4 to his son. Above all else, which means this is really important. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. You see, Solomon understood that what is in our hearts will eventually make its way out into our lives. What is in your heart will eventually come out in your words. What is in your heart will eventually come out in your actions. What is buried deep within you will eventually come out. And so Solomon was right. This was great advice. Guard your heart because everything else flows from it. It was very good advice that he gave and it was very good advice that he failed to follow. He failed to guard his own heart. And so he drifted away from the Lord and towards these other so-called gods. 
And eventually, after enough time, after enough drifting, Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he failed to guard his heart. I remember a story years ago I heard from a pastor who went to meet a guy who was a leader in his church. Uh, he went to this guy's office to sit with him and to, to pray with him. And, and they met and during the course of their meeting. This guy confessed to the pastor that his marriage just was not going well. Uh, he said, I, I, I need to talk to you. I need you to pray for me. He said, my wife and I are fighting all the time. Things just, just aren't going well. And the pastor agreed. And then in the course of the conversation, the guy said, you know, I've actually been meeting with a coworker here as well who's been talking to me and praying with me about my marriage. And it's, it's really been a, long, uh, a big help to me uh, going through all of this with my wife. This pastor was very wise and he looked at the guy and he said, let me ask you a question. This coworker that you've met with, that you've prayed with, that's been such a big help to you, um, that coworker doesn't happen to be that cute young assistant that greeted me when I came in today, does it? And the guy confessed, well, yeah, that's, that's it, but she's a really strong Christian, and there's nothing that's going on, and we're just meeting together and talking and praying together, and she's just really concerned about me. And he was telling the truth, nothing had happened yet. But this pastor said three months later it did. Why? The guy never intended to commit adultery. He never intended to have this affair, but he failed to guard his heart. He failed to protect himself. This kind of story is repeated all the time. No one ever sets out to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. But like Solomon, we fail to guard our hearts and we drift. And then we end up in a place that we never intended to go. The first way to fight the spiritual drift is to guard your heart. Secondly, and you can see this on your message map, to fight the spiritual drift, don't compromise. Uh, don't compromise. Again, let's go to the words of Solomon. Poor Solomon, we can pick on him because he wrote so much of the Bible, several books of the Bible. There's so much material that we can go to. We can use his own words against him. Uh, he gave all of this wonderful, tremendous advice uh, and so again, we can go to the words of Solomon this time in Song of Solomon. If you've been around church for a while, you're familiar with the Song of Solomon. It, it, is, it is the passionate story of Solomon's first marriage. Marriage number one out of 700. This was the first. And it tells the story of this couple's courtship and their engagement and their marriage and their first night together and the first several months of their marriage. It is this wonderful, wonderful book. And in the story, during their courtship, during their engagement, they are passionately in love with one another. And there is this great temptation for them to physically express their love for one another. It's very natural, it's very normal. However, Solomon understood how quickly one thing could lead to another and how they could end up in a place they did not want to go. And so he says these words to his fiance. You can see this on your message map. He says to his fiance, catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Here's what he meant. It's not that we jump from 
one place all the way to doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's these steady little compromises over time that end up ruining the vineyards. And so he was saying, let's not compromise at all because we're not sure if we'll end up going to a place that we don't want to go. Now, we do not know this for sure. And I cannot say this with any kind of authority. The Bible doesn't tell us. But my guess is, is that young Solomon never imagined that he would end up marrying 700 women from all these other nations. In fact, we know that his second marriage was to the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he married this daughter as a sort of treaty, uh, as, as a way to keep peace with the powerful name of, uh, nation of Egypt. And it worked. Married this daughter of the Pharaoh. They had an alliance with Egypt. They were able to keep the peace with Egypt. And Solomon thought, well, that one worked. You know, I'll, I'll try it again. Married someone from another nation. And then another, and then another. And after traveling many, many miles with all these marriages, just like the Mars orbiter, one day Solomon looked back and the trajectory of his life was way, way off course. Little compromise, then another compromise, then another compromise. And the next thing he knew, he was doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. But it started off small with one decision, the next decision, and the next decision that eventually led to this major drift. So number one, guard your heart. Number two, don't compromise. Number three, you can fill this in, read the last chapter. And now I know that's a strange way to phrase that, but here's what I mean. Had Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1 been able to read the story of his life in 1 Kings 11, he would have made much different choices. Had he known how it was going to turn out, he would have stopped and he would have considered those choices. Again, we get to go to the words of Solomon and to use his advice from another one of his books, this time the book of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with that book, you know it's a sort of diary of this uh, philosophical journey that Solomon took later in his life. And in chapter 7, this is what Solomon wrote. He said, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Here's another way to translate that verse. Don't judge something by how it starts. Judge it by how it ends. Do not determine the winner of the NASCAR race by who is in the lead after the first lap. Determine the winner by who, who is in the lead when the checker flag waves. That's what Solomon was saying here. Your life and my life will not be ultimately judged by how we start, but by how we finish. The Mars orbiter isn't remembered for starting off well, it is remembered as being this $325 million mistake that failed to send one picture back to NASA. You may start off on the right path. I may start off on the right path. But over our lives, over the many miles of life, if we end up drifting and life blows up, then that is how we will be remembered. 
For years of my ministry, one of my favorite authors and speakers was Ravi Zacharias. I read books by him. I listened to lectures by him. He was, in my opinion, the greatest Christian apologist of our generation. I thoroughly enjoyed all of his lectures. His ministry meant so much to, to me. If you're familiar with his life, you know that three years ago he passed away. And right about the time of his death, it came out that he had, over the last number of years, had multiple, multiple affairs. That he had kept hidden from his wife, from his family, from his friends. Uh, those who worked in his ministry had every intention at one point of keeping his ministry going after his death. They would continue to, to sell his books. They would continue to, to do the kind of ministry that he was doing around the world. But when all of that was revealed, videos were pulled from libraries, uh, books were pulled from church libraries. And Ravi Zacharias, as tremendous as a ministry as he had, is chiefly remembered, not for all of that ministry, but for what happened at the end of his life. Now listen, that doesn't mean, we all make mistakes, that doesn't mean uh, that God can't use us even even when we're flawed and broken. I heard a country preacher say to me one time, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And I, I think that's a, a, a pretty good truth. And we're all broken, we're all flawed. But at the end of the day, how do you want to be remembered? You want to be remembered for faithfully following the, the Lord? For everything around you blowing up. There's this drift that can happen to any one of us in this room. Don't let that person beat you.